0: From the Lucid Fringe Ravings from the Lucid Fringe Musings from an unposturized life Improvised on the front line of love Today, on Ravings from the Lucid Fringe, rooting footsteps, quests into the African wilderness. In Terre des hommes, Saint-Exupéry's classic memoir of his time as a pilot in the early decades of air flight, it is indeed the land that becomes the greatest teacher. On reading it recently in the original French... I experienced some minor deja vu when he talked of the terrifying days in the Sahara Desert he spent after a forced landing. No, I haven't crashed a plane, but I have allowed myself to be disoriented, reoriented, fearful, grateful, walking and sitting in wild places. <laughs> Today, we get concerned that we cannot escape surveillance or cell phone reception. Though I smile a little wryly at our dystopian techno-worries, having seen how quickly we are still able to go into poorly understood territory even when Google Maps has signal. Concerns were rather different in Saint-Exupéry's day reduced to seeking dew-drops from patches on the plain to quench thirst the appearance of mirages after days without food and water were one aspect of the experience another was marvelling at the way life carried on regardless desert mammals and lizards somehow working out how to survive in their evolutionary niche emotions were ripped to shreds, turned upside down and squeezed out into deep gratitude for the Bedouin stranger who finally found him, because life had more in store for the author, not least, of course, gifting us, Le Petit Prince, some years later. In other words, Saint-Exupery experienced accidentally what many indigenous cultures deliberately set out to provide to seekers of spiritual truth, a vision quest perhaps in the still moments, following natural song lines into unexpected dimensions in stepping moments. I put accidentally in inverted commas because part of his soul really threw himself at danger in order to feel more alive. The book begins with hero worship for an older aviator who made it through the Andes alone when everybody had given him up for dead, and Saint-Exupéry later died in another plane crash during the Second World War. This need for men to experience risk, to feel death around the next corner, is a recognised aspect of many profound versions of the traditional spiritual vision quest not just what drives modern adrenaline junkies. Of course, women can satisfy their masculinity in this way too. Today, we are more open to crossing such binary lines. But the indigenous awareness was that men, biologically locked out of the monthly cycles and the necessities of child-raising that brought women into connection with each other and the tribe, deeply needed to experience challenges that would flirt with danger, but ultimately increase their reverence for life and desire to protect it. Extended time, fasting in nature away from society, observing, is likely to lead to profoundly expanded perceptions, to reverence for and connection to the living systems of the planet, and to a stronger sense of purpose and emotional presence. And so I have at times taken this step in a small way and supported many others to do so. Not 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, like the story proclaims for Jesus. Nor yet a full and wild three nights without food or water, as promoted by some South American tribes that run such ceremonies and their adherence in South Africa. Intense tests on the body need serious preparation, more than the current fad for intermittent fasting or an annual religious day out from food. Valuable as those may both be. I was talking recently with a parent of a young person who was going to take on such a quest. A well-travelled South African, they had experienced a vision quest with native shamans in the southern United States, which they said resulted in the most intense, trippy visions. These visions still live with them vividly and guide their journey to this day, decades later. In the most intense versions I've heard of the quest participants spend the day before the fast drinking nothing but a mescaline-rich brew of the San Pedro cactus, of Peruvian origin but surreptitiously adorning many suburban South African gardens. And after several days without water, the first thing they're given to drink is another day of mescaline brew, if that sounds intense. The idea is that drinking this entheogen is to help integrate the intensity of the visions naturally received on such a journey. A whole day on mescaline is actually a step down from the overwhelm of the fasting vision. My own shorter times fasting in nature, taking notes, setting intentions, watching and observing, have led to some beautiful realizations, perhaps not as profound as a multi day quest, but still the importance of getting this kind of time out away from civilization is one I am grateful for. I have felt it most strongly in South Africa, though on my last trip to England back in 2012 I was also lucky enough to spend time, after connecting with my island ancestry, on a quest in Dartmoor. That part of the southwestern peninsula has some unexpectedly genuine wilderness to sit in in that most wilderness poor of European nations, the last part of England to have had a pair of golden eagles back in the seventies. Scotland, Wales, and Ireland are, of course, much richer in genuine wilderness possibilities. An owl came and sat in a tree on my right, while a squirrel busied herself in a tree on my left, and I pondered the relationship between wisdom and playfulness. It was in the Western Cape Cedarburg Mountains that I first became aware of this wilder quality in the world. An awareness of the aliveness of the land. Of its profound intelligence. Of the riddles it offers up to those with inquiring souls. Trails that were overgrown because nobody had hiked there in months. Stones that told stories no ordinary human understood. And the skies. Orion tracing his steps, Scorpio pointing out the Milky Way, the Southern Cross pointing across the heavens, and rocks with holes that seemed to be portals, and probably were after imbibing the right potions or spending enough time listening. The Cedarberg is also home to a South African human success turned tragedy rooibos tea, grown from these soils and originally nowhere else, part of the Western Cape's unique floral kingdom. But there has been an inability to protect patents in a ruthless economic world that rests on the lies that nature's intellectual property can be owned. And the money and the harvests are flowing to the global north, the old African story. Yet if this attempt to enter that crumbling global system has failed, the Cedarburg wilderness still offers up plenty other gifts that can only be harvested with the heart. If the magic is thick in the roots of the Cedarburg, it is so partly because the geological weathering there is so dramatically artistic but these mountains also showed me a taste of responsibility that was less welcome. A trip with kids in the spring, when the waters were flowing and rain was still likely. A night in a rough house, far down a 4 by 4 track from a well-stocked campsite, and across a river that we had to wade, after parking a landy, with all our stuff for the next two nights. Except we didn't quite take enough, figuring it was late and we could get more supplies in the morning. Morning came, and with it the waters had risen. There was no way over. We walked up and downstream, two fathers worrying about our kids while the supplies ran low. The quids had guavas stewed in apple juice for supper. Nobody from the campsite came to save us. The next day, the water had dropped enough to attempt a crossing. The other dad, the landy owner, swam over the icy stream to get a jerry can that acted as a float. Then we got all the stuff and the kids and the dog across in multiple trips, swimming in the hail. Nature is a tough teacher, and we do need to treat her with respect. There are still plenty of places in Africa to learn such lessons, where cell reception is unavailable and the health and safety panickers can't quite reach but this was a lesson I would have preferred on my own, even if it's one my kids will never forget. Parts of the Seelenburg are world famous for bouldering opportunities. I have respect for such sport, especially getting out to pursue such physicality into the hills or the oceans. Yet there's more to be experienced beyond the sport of peak bagging or rock conquering. There's slow steps, communing with lizards and proteas, watching the shadows change, spying emerging beetles and sunbirds, drinking fresh water, churned and energetically recharged by the spiral patterns of the stones the stream pours over. Ten years ago, I spent a slow day solo hiking barefoot in the Table Mountain National Park, my soft souls forcing me to take time, recognising the gatherings and decade-long conversations of bushes and forest fungi, and noticing rocks whose conversations must last eons. By contrast, the busy chatter of passing humans was as outlandish and ephemeral as the daisies. And back in my days as a young intern at a Cape-based environmental NGO, I walked on a vast farm on my first visit to the Karoo, northeast of Ceres, a few short hours from the big city. We rushed out there, kids in our mid-twenties, using surfer slang and checking each other out. But the rocks had other lessons for us. Unexpected twists, unlikely mysteries, as did the succulents, tiny stone plants, defying the rules to keep alive in dry places, daring to bloom. The first people had been there, ceremonially painting in earthy ochre on the natural walls. A different sense of time landed on us, whether we had been looking for it or not. The first time I sat in the Western Cape Wilderness areas, I remember hearing that leopards were about, as well as venomous snakes. Leopards keep well out of human areas, and snakes are pretty scarce as well. But I got to watch a gorgeous slung rolling around a nearby tree on a camping trip last year. And twenty-five years ago I almost stepped on a puff adder en route with student friends to the Cape Town nudist beach, which felt amusingly symbolic, but these sightings are generally rare. An acquaintance got a late-night puff adder bite a year ago, which could have been fatal, but she cured herself with a paste made with moringa and turmeric, knowing her proportions intuitively and brilliantly, after years learning plants and returning that knowledge to people in the rural areas. I once walked in Kirstenbosch Botanical Gardens with a traditional African herbalist who pointed out the snake-antidote bushes that grow frequently. There are dangers in the bush – And there are cures. It's vital that we reconnect to the land wisdom in order to know both, in order to be prepared to go and harvest visions, in order to reconnect to Mother Earth. Oh, we could turn to the fake Amazon, the online one, which recently offered for sale a book written by a fictitious author, but actually unacknowledged, an AI program, purporting to tell the reader about picking of edible mushrooms without really knowing the first thing about fungus. I know which version of land knowledge and experience I'd rather trust and share with my children. Ravings from the Lucid Fringe Musings from an unposturized life, improvised on the front line of love and beauty.